Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you again on a very rainy day. Um, I definitely admit looking outside, it was hard to get out of bed seeing all the rain this morning, but uh, it's a joy to be here anyway. This morning, we're going to be looking at the topic of Christians and adversity, um, looking at Hebrews chapter 12. This is loosely, if you're following along in the Sunday School books, taken from unit 6 of um, the first of these, uh, trying to get this to listen to what I'm trying to say, there we go. Uh, the first stud, uh, first of the Sunday School booklets that we just finished were in the second book, um, where we're going to be loosely looking at uh, responding to suffering and adversity um, this morning. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll read together the first, um, the first 17 verses. <clears throat> Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest he be wearied and faint in your minds." Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chasten us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness." Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Amen. Let's open with a word of prayer. Our dear Lord and our eternal Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you for another morning where we can look into your word. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, that we would receive uh, what you have for us. Lord, we pray that you uh, would uh, give me strength, Lord, to speak your word in spirit and in truth. Lord, we pray that you'd bless us and draw us near in our walk uh, with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.
So a number of weeks ago, and I guess to a certain extent, this continues for a lot longer than that, um, stretching back, Liesl and I have had a lot of conversations over, well, it's probably a number of years now, about the direction this world is going and what that means for us as a family. It's something we talk about a lot. What does it mean for us to be living in a world that seems to be whole hog heading in a direction that is not right? We're living in a very, very strange world. Um, it's very different than what we would remember five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, it seems to be going in a very, very wrong direction. And through that, one of the things that Lisa and I have talked about is what, what does that mean if in the future this means something for us and our family? If this means that as a family we're going to be at odds with the world and this is going to have a real, real effect on our family. And through a lot of those conversations, it's become clear to us that maybe we're not ready for affliction in that sense. It's not an easy topic to have. Um, maybe we're not fully ready for it. Um, or maybe put just a little differently, our attitude towards the thought of persecution is a mindset of, we really hope this never comes. Or maybe we're a little afraid of it. And, and I think that's natural. It's normal to be afraid of the thought of affliction or persecution. Um, our attitude isn't one of we're, we're ready for this if this comes. We're, we're ready for um, standing for the Lord, even if it means persecution. And it's, it's a difficult topic. And we found it to be such in a lot of our conversations going back and forth. It's, it's a difficult thing to think about, especially for parents um, with children and and I think if we're honest with ourselves, I don't think Lisa and I are alone in this. I think this is a conversation that I think all of us can look at the world around us and can think this is something that I have thought about as well. And this is something that is something that's a little bit of a struggle. Um, the New Testament seems to talk about affliction as something that should, it's not a good, nobody, you know, if somebody steals your home, you're not going to say that that was really a good, th- I, I didn't think that was a good thing. But it was a really good thing. And that's not the way that we're supposed to. It's not a good thing, but we're supposed to look past that and to think of it as a joyous thing. And that's, it's really unnatural. It's really unnatural. It's not something that's easy to do. Um, but even though that's kind of our attitude, we're living, as I mentioned, in a world that's rapidly going towards the depths of immorality. And they're not satisfied with just doing that by themselves, but they want to stop the mouths or anyone that would practice otherwise. Um, just think of in our society, if you were to say 20 years ago, a man can't be a woman. No one is going to argue with that. At, well, maybe 20 years ago. Now, if you say that, you, you, you might lose your job. You know, you might be cast out or even taken to court in certain places. I think Washington's actually one of those places where if you said that, they might take you to court and they might have a legal case against you for hate speech. Um, We're living in a world where if the Lord doesn't intervene, we can see the world progressing very soon to a place where barring either his return or a great revival in our nation, that we're going to be living a a life where we may very well soon be suffering persecution just for holding a basic Christian morality, just for having a simple testimony that we believe what the word of God says about Christ and for believing in the promises that we have. And so this is something, it's a difficult topic, 
it's a little bit of a struggle. It's been a struggle for me. And part of the reason why this is one of the things that I chose to speak on is because it's a struggle for me. Um, and so this has been encouraging to me. And I hopefully um, through this, this is something that uh, we can all be encouraged in as well. So Christian adversity, um, what are we what are we talking about here? Like what is this specifically? What what is this subset of the Christian experience um, that we're talking about? Um, we're not primarily referencing here, um, I use this word on Lisa in the car and she was very impressed, the vicissitudes of life. Um, I felt it was impressive. Um, there's, there's normal hardships of life that we come by because we live in a fallen world. We have to wake up, we have to be fatigued, we work a, we work a difficult job, um, we're tired, we have to work for a living, um, we can lose our job, we can, you know, through hard times, become delinquent on a loan or a mortgage. Um, some of the natural pains that come in living in a fallen world. And that's, that's not really what we're talking about when we talk about Christian adversity. Um, there's a situation that Lisa and I are dealing with, um, and a lot of you have heard about it because it seems to be something we talk about a lot, is uh, we have a situation where uh, someone has essentially defrauded us for six months over a set of doors. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a pain. It's a little bit of a frustrating situation, but it's not Christian adversity. I'm not, this isn't something because I'm a Christian. This is just, you know, I have an unbelieving contractor who endured the same thing through this person. Um, but what we're really talking about in this is we're talking about opposition due to following Christ. We're talking about persecution that comes because we are his servants. And this is adversity that's coming from in the study, and I think this is, is well borne out in the Word of God, is that it's coming from three places. It's coming from our sinful flesh, it's coming from the opposition of the world, and it's coming from the spiritual powers of darkness. So from ourselves, we have a traitor in the ranks to a certain degree. We have the world, and we have Satan. And these three things, they have really one goal in mind. They really all are working together to do the same thing, and that's to get us to turn back from following Christ. They want us to turn away from him. Um, and if we kind of look at the book of Hebrews as a unity, as a whole, this is something that really binds the book together in that the writer of Hebrews is, is trying to encourage them with truths about Christ and his ministry so that they do not turn back from following after him. Through chapter 3, through chapter 4, and then he picks up that theme again in 10 through 13, is that he's trying to get them to not turn away from following after Christ. Because that's what Christian adversity is intending to do. It's getting us to turn away from these things. And that's what the Hebrews were struggling with. Um, they were struggling with being afraid and wanting to turn away from Christ to a certain degree because of the persecution that they were facing. Um, another way that we could um, put this um, is it's sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And let me read First Peter Chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. So this is something that we are suffering when we talk about Christian persecution because 
we claim the name of Christ. Something because we claim the name of Christ. So what does it look like? Um, there's a couple of examples that um, I think we readily can think of. And the first thing that we think of is the early church. We can think of the martyrs. Um, I very much enjoy reading Fox's Book of Martyrs and listening to some of the things that they struggled through, some of the things that they endured. Um, do you think of also reading through the book of Acts, some of the things that the early church endured, uh, some of the persecution that was initially spearheaded by Saul and then continued after Saul converted. And we know him obviously as Paul. Um, and then also the Roman, the Roman nation through history. We can read about how the Roman nation, the different um, Caesars, Nero, Titus and many of the others hated the church and persecuted them. And the Christians suffered, not because they were evil, not because they did anything or, you know, what they were doing was good, but they suffered because they claimed the name of Christ. Um, another good example is, we're in the book of Hebrews, is the Hebrew church. And in chapter 10, um, near the end, there's a, a list of, to a certain degree, some of the things that they themselves were suffering. And they were not the greatest sufferers for the name of Christ, but they did endure very much. Um, verses 32 through 34, he says, but call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used for you had compassion of me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing that you in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your, con your confidence, which has a great recompense of reward. So the Hebrew church, um, obviously that's not a place, but they were enduring many, many things. They were being a gazing stock, which basically is the idea of being humiliated in a public sphere. So as you're out in public, you know, people calling you names, hurling insults at you just because you're a Christian. Um, reproaches, some of them were thrown into jail. Um, they were obviously enduring this together. Um, this obviously also, as they were a Jewish community, meant that for the sake of Christ, they were losing family, they were losing friends, they were losing community, which is something that's incredibly important to anyone, but especially to them. Um, they were having their substance spoiled, the idea of uh, their property being taken away for the sake of Christ. So, so they were a church that was enduring a lot just for the sake of Christ. Um, the third example is the Old Testament saints. And Hebrews chapter 11 does a really good job of bringing those things together. This is a list of people who endured for Christ. They endured many different things. It's a very diverse list um, from the idea of having to endure the leaving of your home um, to the losing of their lives. And so this is a list of people that endured much for the sake of Christ. And so we know, we know what it looks like to a large degree, but something that I think we maybe struggle with in our mind is the idea of who, who faces it, um, and that is all Christians. And scripture seems to be very clear on this, that all Christians are going to some degree, whether that be large or small, are going to be suffering persecution. 
So 2 Timothy 3.12 states that all Christians who will live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. So this is, if you desire to live a life of holiness in the world, the world is going to persecute you for that. So all Christians, I mean, we all desire to live holy. We all desire to follow Christ and to do what is right. And so to a certain degree, we are all going to be part of that. And there's a reason for that. And that's what Jesus says in John chapter 15. And I'll read uh, those two verses there. But in John 15, verse 20 and 21, He says, remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. So he says, if they persecuted me and they did persecute him, then they are also going to persecute his servants. And they, they didn't persecute Christ for something that he had done. It, it says elsewhere, they persecuted him because his works were good and theirs were evil. And so the world is not looking for a reason to persecute Christians. It, it has as much reason as it needs, but what it is looking for is the opportunity to persecute Christians. They're not looking for a why, They're looking for a where and when they can persecute Christians. That is their goal. That is what they desire because they hate Christ and they hate those that follow after him. So this is all Christians. And this is something that was taught as important in the early church. In Acts 14, this is just just one verse. But this is Paul and Barnabas going about in their missionary journey, preaching the gospel. And in 1422, it says that uh, when they were in these places, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, they were confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And so they're, they're testifying to these churches that as Christians, they are going to enter into the kingdom of God, but that's going to mean tribulation. That's going to mean adversity. That's going to mean persecution to one degree or another. So this is something that we're all going to face, and this could be in a small way. I think in Hebrews chapter 11, it lists a number of people, and I always find it interesting that um, Sarah is included in that list, and and. The, the, the tribulation and persecution that she faced to a large degree was from the, the sin of her flesh, the sin of doubt, in that she was having a hard time believing that the Lord could accomplish his promises through her. And you can kind of see that playing out in that she was giving Abraham her handmaid. She, she didn't believe that it was going to come through her as the Lord had promised. So her struggle was, to a certain degree, a very small one. It was an internal struggle. Um, and our struggle may be small in that sense, or or it might be large in the sense of someone um, like some of the prophets near the end of the chapter who um, it read were stone or sawn asunder. Um, they may be small or great, but we are all to some degree going to face adversity here in this world. And so this is something that we need to be ready for. This is something we need to be armed for in our minds so that we're watching and waiting so that we can stand strong 
to serve our Lord no matter what that entails. So we need to prepare. So what does that um, look like? What are some things that that entails? Um, so Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse 1, um, we read, We are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And so this verse is obviously looking back to chapter 11, but what it's saying is the Christian life is a race. And I think a lot of us have run races before. Um, we're pursuing after a goal and we're willingly putting ourselves through hardship to do that. Um, sprinting a mile is not easy. It's not fun to a large degree. It's, it's hard. You're, you're putting yourself through hardship for the sake of the joy of finishing the race for hardship. And he's saying that if you look back on these people in chapter 11, what they were doing is they were looking forward to the promises of Christ. They were taking hold of those promises in faith and following after those things and pursuing after them, even though that meant hardship for them. And that is what it means to run, run the race that is set before us is that there's, there are promises that are set before us and we're to take hold of those things through faith, like, um, like those saints that are listed in, um, chapter 11. And so in this first verse, um, it, ta it talks about two things that they are supposed to put off. Um, and that's every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Those two things. So that, that firstly, that word weight, it, that's something that it means encumbrance. It's something that holds you, holds you back. And this is something that is probably a fairly large category. This is just something in general that keeps us from pursuing after the Lord's promises. And there's a lot of things that this entails. I um, listened to a message and S.L.S. Johnson referenced this verse. And he said for him, it was golf. Um, he said, I, I did this in the car and I, I don't know if I could imitate his voice for, you know, in front of a larger audience, but he said he would go to the golf course and that meant, you know, six hours going through 18 holes, probably another two telling everyone about, you know, on the 19th hole in the clubhouse, how the other 18 went and then another half an hour both ways. And he'd spend an entire day without, without spending any time or any effort in pursuing after what the Lord had called him to do. And so he'd say, this was an encumbrance for him. He'd say another encumbrance for me is, is gardening. Um, you go out on Saturday and you spend the whole day gardening and, um, it was an encumbrance for him. And that's not a sinful thing. It was just something that kept him from pursuing after the Lord's promises and what the Lord had for him to do. And in chapter 11, we have examples of people like that as well. Um, Moses is a good example. Um, there was nothing sinful in being part of the royal family. There was nothing sinful with being in a position where you have riches and wealth. But if he had clung on to those things so that he didn't pursue after what the Lord had for them, for him, he would have never been part of the deliverance that the Lord had for the nation of Israel. And Abraham as well, looking even further back. There's nothing wrong with having a nice home in Mesopotamia. It's not a sin to live in Mesopotamia. We obviously don't live there, but it wouldn't have been a sin to live there. But the Lord called him to go out and to dwell in the land of promise. And if he had said, 
I really like my house. I really like living here. And he had clung on to that. He would have never been a participant in the Lord's promises. And obviously it would have been sinful for him to not do what the Lord had commanded him to do. But it, it, it's, it's something that he had to put off. It's a weight. It's something that's keeping him from pursuing after the Lord's promises. And it says later, if he had been thinking about that home, he could have had an opportunity to return to it, but it, it would have been a weight. It would have been something that kept him from um, looking forward to the Lord's promises. And so it's something that we should consider as well. I think I felt maybe a kinship with S.O.S. Johnson to a certain degree when he talked about golf. I, I don't I don't golf, but I do love playing disc golf. And um, it's not something I find a lot of time for anymore. I, you know, I find myself taken up in a lot of other things, but it is something that I can look back on and say, you know what, this, this kept me from maybe doing the things for my family, spending more time with devotions with the kids and, you know, involving myself with the family, involving myself uh, with my wife, or even involving myself in prep preparing for the things of the church. Um, and so there's a certain degree, which I can look back and say, this is maybe a weight for me. And so I think all of us should should look at our life and think what what are the things that are keeping me from pursuing after the Lord's promises? What what are these weights that um, are holding me back, are weighing me down um, from following after the Lord? Um, when I was a swimmer, uh, we used to take weights and we try to see how long with we could that we could swim with a weight. It was it was a lot of fun, but um, Eventually, if you held that weight, you'd, you'd sink and you'd have to drop it down to the bottom of the pool and get out. And then you'd, you'd jump back in and get the weight and put it on, on land. But you'd eventually sink because you couldn't bear that, that weight for forever. And, and a runner, in the same way, if they're weighted down, they're not going to be able to run the same way that they would otherwise. And so we need, we need to look at our life to think about what are the things that are holding us back um, and put those weights off. Not to necessarily cling to things that aren't sinful in themselves, but if they keep us from following after the Lord, then those are things that we need to think about and to put off. Secondly, the sin which doth so easily beset us. And obviously, all sins are going to keep us from following after Christ. You know, none of the Lord's promises include sin. That's not what the Lord has for believers. But there's one sin in particular that keeps us from following after the Lord's promises. And so this sin particularly is one sin that we need to put off. And that's the sin of doubt. And that's what the, he the Hebrews were struggling with most. They were doubting the Lord's promises. They were doubting maybe the character of the Lord. And, and we, we again think back to the, the people in Hebrews 11. Abraham could never have obeyed the promises of the Lord if when the Lord said, I want you to go out into this unknown land and I'm going to make for you there a home. People said, you know what? I have a really nice home. I don't think the Lord is really going to give me a home in that new land. Or maybe it's not going to be as nice as where I am right now. He would have never gone out to take, to take the land of promise. Um, or Moses, if he doubted the power of the Lord, you know, Pharaoh is a really powerful king. I really don't know if the Lord can overcome him and lead the people out of the land of captivity that, that, that would have been contradicting to the life of faith for Moses. It would have kept him from following after the Lord's promises. And so doubt is, obviously, it's the opposite of faith. And where faith leads us to hope in the Lord's promises, to follow after the Lord's promises, doubt causes us to fear and to stumble. And so it's something that we need to be very wary of in our own life 
so that we, we, do, we don't just know the promises of the Lord, but we're firmly assured of those things that they're true so that we follow after them in our own life. We need to firmly believe the Lord's promises. And so that's why when we come to a command like we have in scripture, where it, where it tells us to count adversity as joy. Like, how can we count adversity, Christian persecution, as joy? It's, it's, it's not a joyous thing. Like, it's something that's a legitimately bad thing. And, and again, he's not telling us to think of it as good. Like, you're not, you're not to stand if somebody's, you know, spitting on you and casting insult to you in the public sphere. You're not supposed, we, this is a moral good. That's not what we're supposed to think, but we're supposed to think of that as a joyful thing. And how is that possible? And it, it, it's possible by remembering and trusting in the promises of the Lord. And those promises are very clear on all counts that it's, it's not something that we do by staring at what we're going through in this moment, but it's by looking past those things and looking off into the future when the Lord's promises are going to be fully accomplished. And so one of those promises that we have to look forward to in Christian persecution is the thought of the coming reward that we have for following after Christ. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 12, this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount um, talking about this. And he says, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you. And she'll say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted that they, the prophets, which were before you. I can tell you if I was being publicly persecuted, I'm not feeling I'm blessed in that moment. I really am not going to be feeling that I'm blessed, but we have to have a mind where we're able to look past what we're enduring in the moment and, and realize that there's a great reward coming in the future. Um, Hebrews 10:34, which I believe we already, we already read, says the same thing. Um, speaking of the afflictions that they were enduring, it says, For you had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing that in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. So speaking of the reward that they have in the future, they have something that's better than what they've lost. Um, so the question should, should arise, how great is that reward? He says, it's a great reward. So what, what does that mean, that we have a great reward? Um, well, it's not something that we have to wonder about. It's not something that we have to... Um, be confused about because this is uh, spelled out by the Lord's word. First uh, Corinthians chapter four, and I'll just read this to you. This is verses 16 through 18. It says, wherefore I beseech you be followers of me. Am I in the right place? I'm not in the right verse. You know, I bet I'm in 2 Corinthians. Yes. 
Second Corinthians chapter four, verses 16 through 18. For this cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not are eternal. And so when, when Paul is looking at the thought of Christian reward and what we may lose for the sake of Christian persecution in this life, he looks, he looks past that and he says, these things are temporary. These things, they may seem great, but when you compare it with what's coming later, it's, it's, it's a scale that's like this. There's no comparison between what we may lose for persecution or for affliction now and what's coming later. There's no comparison. It's, it's great because it's, it's not even comparable to what we may suffer now. And there's a lot of things that are included in that. Um, there are many great verses in the Bible, and I think we'd be here a long time if, well, longer than we will already, um, if we were to go through them all. But just, just two that I, that I picked out, and this is the conclusion of all things. This is Revelation chapter 21. He says, And he said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst the fountains of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And so this is, this is something that has specific reference to us. When we think about what we are going to gain in the eternal realm, we're, we're gaining the kingdom, a place in the kingdom of Christ, but, but not as a servant or not as a slave or not as anything other than the children of God. That, that is not just an incredible position, but it's an, it's, sorry, it's not just an incredible place, but it's an incredible position to be the Lord's children, a place in his kingdom. And it says ruling, you know, beside Christ, ruling over all things. But we're not just there, but we also have a place with Christ. So to be absent with the body is present with the Lord. We're, we're not just in the kingdom, but we're, we're with Christ. And Paul says, I, I, I think of all, of all these things that I'm enduring and I, and I count them as essentially rubbish because I know that on the other end of these things, I'm going to win Christ. Christ is the exceeding great reward. So we're not, we're not just in the kingdom. We're not just the children of God, but our reward is we, we win Christ. We win a place with him, uh, throughout all eternity. And that's, that's an incredible great reward, but, but it's not something that we see now. It's not something that we see now at all. I think, you know, I, I say all these things, but I, I think if I was, you know, met with, uh, you know, I, I show up to work the next day and they say, um, if you do, do you believe that a transgender coworker is really who they say they are? I think it, it would still be a very difficult thing, even even in the light of the fact that we have these rewards. But it, but it's for that very reason that when we think about these things, we have to firmly be assured of these things to sure, assuredly know them to be true. And to take hold of them fast so that when these things come, we don't get lost and forget the fact that we can take joy in that because the Lord, the Lord is going to reward us greatly above anything that we could have lost. 
So we can look to the coming reward, but there's also an assurance that we can take in also remembering the promises of, of the coming judgment. Um, and this is not something that you're looking forward in towards us, but this is something that we're looking in towards the world without. And I, I think it's really difficult for me, and, and we, Lisa and I have talked about this as well. We look around and you see evil just whole scale really having the victory to a large degree. And that is really difficult to see. It's hard to look out and see evil advancing, evil winning, evil being praised as good. And that's difficult to endure when you see my good deeds are being looked down on as evil, whereas evil is being paraded through the streets as just this wonderful, virtuous thing. It's hard to see evil in the public sphere being viewed as good. And it's hard to think that they're getting away with evil. But they will not. They will not. And that's something that we have to be assured of. Our Lord is just and he's going to justly repay not just those that are evil, but those that are those that rise up to persecute the church. If we endure suffering, the Lord is going to justly repay that. Uh, another of the churches that was struggling with persecution was the Thessalonian church. They were enduring much hardship. Um, they were enduring much affliction to the point where they thought they were in the final days, which is something that that Paul had to correct. But he does write to them. This in chapter one of the second epistle, um, speaking of these tribulations, this is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Seeing as a, it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, but to you who are troubled rest with us. And here's, here's when that's going to happen. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So evil may be triumphing maybe now in the present age, but there's the coming day of the Lord. And in that day of the Lord, there's going to be reward for the people that faithfully trust in Christ and eternal destruction for those that reject him and persecute him, that persecute his church. There's a coming judgment that cannot be, um, cannot be put off, cannot be forgotten. Um, there is a certainty of judgment. Um, there's further verses that kind of spell that out. I, I, I think we need to, to move on. But the Lord is going to judge evil. There is no escape for those that, um, that are persecuting the church. The third one is, is looking to the Lord's purpose. And in verses 5 to 11 of Hebrews chapter 12, um, this is spelled out by the writer of the epistle. But he speaks of the fact that the Lord's purposes are not what we would think of as the Lord's purposes. Our, our natural way of thinking is when we, when we endure something hard, the first thing that comes to our mind is, how could the Lord allow this to happen to me? Or is, is this something I deserve? We, we think of it as, you know, maybe even the Lord punishing us or, you know, we're, we're being allowed to endure something hard you know, because of something that we've done, 
And if we think of Job, this is what his friends thought. This is their natural reaction, too, is you must have really done something bad for this to be happening to you. And that, that's kind of our natural mindset as well, to a certain degree. Um, but that's not the Lord's purposes. The Lord's purpose in tribulation is not to punish. That's, that's not why the Lord allows us to in, endure persecution and tribulation. The, the punishment that the Lord had for us as the Lord's people was consummated on the cross in Christ. So his purposes towards us are not punishment. His purposes towards us are that of refining. His purpose is that we would share in his holiness. Um, that's Hebrews 12 and verse number, <clears throat> uh, verses 10 and 11. For they verily for a few days, speaking of our earthly fathers, chasten us after their own pleasure, but the Lord for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So his purpose is, is so that we would be holy as he is holy. It's a refining, it's a refining uh, persecution that he allows us to endure. But it's, but it's not just refining. The purpose is also that of blessing, of giving us something that we did not have before. And when you think of Job, Job really is the perfect example of Christian affliction. And, and it's not because he faithfully endured through some of the most terrible things that you can imagine from, from a person for losing his family, losing everything he had, losing his health, losing his friends. He lost everything, but he was faithful through that. He did not cast away his confidence in the Lord. He did not speak evil of the Lord, but he, he trust, he didn't understand, but he trusted in that. But that's not even the full reason why he's an excellent example of Christian adversity. Um, He's a perfect example of Christian adversity because through Job, we also see an additional purpose of the Lord through tribulation. And I wanted to read James 5.10. Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job, which is what we're talking about, and have seen the end of the Lord or the purpose of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. So through the endurance or through the trial of Job, we're, we're to see the Lord's mercy. We're to see the Lord's pity. And how does that express itself in the life of Job? We don't come to the end of the life of Job and see the Lord come to Job and say, you lost everything for the sake of your Lord. You endured through it faithfully. Good job and leave. That's not the end of the story of Job. The end of the story of Job is that he is abundantly blessed over and above what he had before. The end of the story is that the Lord used these tribulations, these hard things that he endured to, to bless Job. He not only had his children in heaven from uh, before, but he also has this new family that the Lord blesses him with, double the belongings that he had before. The Lord uses this momentary affliction in Job's life to bless him abundantly above what he had before. The Lord's purposes in affliction isn't, isn't just 
to refine us. But through affliction, he blesses us with more um, than we had before. And that's maybe not like Job here now. I mean, we may not be able to say if we lose a, ho- a home for our Lord that uh, we're going to get it, you know, two homes in a, in a few weeks. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a great reward in heaven for those that are faithful through tribulation. And that's part of the Lord's purpose in um, in suffering. And so we have we have promises of the Lord. We, we know there's a reward coming. We know there's a judgment coming. And we know that the Lord's purposes towards us are not evil, but the Lord's purposes towards us are good. So we can take great comfort in that and be faithful and prepare ourselves for tribulation, knowing those things. Um, we'll go through we'll go through this very quickly, but we we do have examples, and we've we've been speaking of examples for a long time. The saints in uh, Hebrews chapter eleven, those that um, endured these great things, and and if we were able to talk to them, I think they would all say we we endured much, we we lost we lost much, but what we have now is so much better than what we lost. The, the, the place that we have with Christ in him and where they are now is so much better than what they lost. And as, and as far as thinking about how we're to endure these things, our, our Lord is really the supreme example. And that's in Hebrews chapter 12. We read it as well in, in 2 through 4. We're, we're to look unto Jesus, the author and finish of our, of our faith. And then, and then it speaks... When he endured tribulation and suffering, how did he, what, what did he arm himself in his mind with to do that? And it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, but is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So one of the things that Jesus armed himself with in his mind was he knew how terrible the cross was. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read about him in great drops of blood, just agonizing over really what he was going to endure for the redemption of his people. But he looked forward beyond that to the great joy of being the redeemer of his people, for the great joy of being the king and the Lord over all things that through this tribulation, the Lord was going to accomplish and so even as the Lord looked forward to the joy and endured the shame, we're, we're to arm ourselves in our mind with the same way of thinking. We're also supposed to look forward to the Lord's promises, to take hold of those things in faith and to endure hardship even in the face of that. Um, so very quickly, let's, uh, let's think of some pitfalls. In endurance, some things that can cause us to stumble, some things that can cause us to fall short of following after the Lord in this way. Um, and the writer of Hebrews is is interested in this. He's exhorting them. He says, "Don't be." Um, in verse number three, he he warns them against being wearied and fainting in their minds. So there's this idea of of growing weary of persecution. Um, it's, it's, it's easy to endure for a little while. Um, you can, you can do pretty much anything for a little while, but it's really hard to endure things for a long, long while. And with the analogy of a race, I used to do long distance swimming. I really enjoyed the 500 yard, which was a long race, but the quarter mile was a lot of fun. Um, it wasn't easy, 
But you'd, you'd swim this and you'd see people, they'd jump in and they would sprint through 10, 10 lengths of the pool. And a lot of them would give up because it's not the first 10 that are hard. It's the second 44. Like that's the hard part. And I remember, I remember one time we had a race and one of the coach, the assistant coach was going to swim with us and he was talking about how great it was going to be. He was going to come and he was going to show us all how it's done. His name is Jake Dove. Um, he was, he was, he was an interesting character, but he jumped in, swam two lengths and gave up. He was tired. He made it whole 50 yards out of 500. It was embarrassing, but he had no endurance. He wasn't able to, he was able to endure for a short period. That was easy. It's hard to endure for a long while. And so scripture exhorts us not to be weary in well-doing because we're going to reap the reward in the distance if we endure. So we're not to be, we're not to grow tired and that, that's hard, but we're to have endurance. And that's why, um, if you look at swimmers, the, the swimmers that do long distance, they know patience. They know how to pace themselves. But in the same way, when we learn to patiently endure trials, that's the same thing. Endurance leads to patience. But the other thing that's a pitfall is, is fear. And that's, that's something I struggle with. It's, it's easy to struggle with fear. I think a lot of us can say we struggle with fear. And the Hebrews, the Hebrews struggled with fear. And you can know that just by looking at Paul's description of, you know, what they needed to be exhorted away from is talking, lift up your, your drooping hands and your, your, your bending knees. They're, they're, they're discouraged. They're down. They're afraid of, uh, of enduring through these things. And it's, it's easy to be afraid, but we still have to, Look forward to the coming promise. And I, I love that he uses that verse to encourage them because it's not just about the drooping knees that he's quoting there. This is Isaiah chapter 35, um, speaking of the Lord's redemption of the nation of Israel and that day of when it's coming. And starting in verse three, it says, Streak, strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. And so we can strengthen our hands. We can strengthen our weak knees. We, we don't need to be afraid because our Lord is coming and his purposes are to save. So it's, it's difficult to endure through fear, but we can endure that as well. And the last thing is the thought of turning away. Um, there are those, this is the book of Hebrews was written to a mixed company in a large way, some with a true testimony and some with, uh, just a confession, but not the reality thereof. And so there's the thought of, uh, the turning away of some that are not fully, I'd say in Christ. Um, this is hard, but this is something that when Paul or sorry, the writer of Hebrews looks at. The falling away of some in the visible church, if I could put it that way, is something that the entire church has a responsibility in. This, this, this idea of endurance, and this is what I, where I wanted to finish, is not, is not just a personal thing. It's not something that we're to do alone, but we have a responsibility to each other as a church to do this together. And that's why the, the thought of falling away, it, it doesn't just have effect on that person, but it has an effect on the whole multitude. It has an effect on the whole congregation. 
And so there's there's uh, three warnings in verse 15 and 16, but but they're, they're all really the same warning. These aren't a different warning. They're the same warning to a to a large degree. Um, there's the first one, and this is the thought of enduring as a church, is encouraging those that are weak, which is in verse 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. And the idea in this warning is a straggler. You have in a hike, and we've all gone on probably a hike before, and there's always someone that lags behind. And you don't want to leave that person behind, you know, leave them for the wolves and leave them for the bears. But you're not to leave that person behind. And so as a, as a church, we're, we have a responsibility to those that are weak to see that they do not fall away. And this is, this is something that's repeated in Hebrews chapter four, when he says, looking diligently, let us fear lest a promise of being left to us of entering into the Lord's rest. And if you should seem to come short of it. And so he's, he's speaking, looking around at your brothers and sisters that are here. Don't, don't allow someone to be deceived by sin so that they turn away from their testimony in Christ. You're, you're to exhort them. You're to gather them together so that you do not have those that fall away. We have a responsibility towards those that are weak in the faith. Um, our morality, the way that we follow the Lord, uh, affects our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, so there's the encouragement of those that are weak. But there's also this idea of exhorting those and protecting our brother from those that are turning away. Um, and so there's there's two ways that are put. It's there's the idea of this this person that is a bitter root, and then there's an example of that in Esau. Um, and this is not a warning against bitterness. Bitterness is a sin. You shouldn't be bitter. Like it's a sin. You shouldn't you shouldn't do it. But this is not about why you shouldn't be bitter to the Lord or bitter to other people. This is this is looking back to a warning from Moses in Deuteronomy where he says, beware lest there be someone whose heart among you turns after from following the Lord. Someone who is a bitter root, who says to himself in his heart, I'm going to be safe from the punishment of the Lord, even though I walk in my own sin. And so this is a person that, that, that wants their own sin, and so they turn away from following after the Lord. He's, he's a root He's not bitter because he's sinful about bitterness. He's a root that brings bitterness on the entirety of the assembly. Because in the time of Israel, this this person who is following after his own lusts is going to corrupt the congregation and cause other people to follow him into his own sin. In the Christian church, when we have the idea of someone that's publicly following after their own sin, that has a corrupting influence on everyone else. And everyone else may find themselves following into the same kind of sin. And so this is a bitter root because he causes bitterness in the Lord's people and he corrupts many. And so we have a responsibility not just to exhort those that may have doubts, but we're to protect each other against someone that is turning away from the Lord and rejecting the Lord's promises. And Esau is the perfect example of this because we have a, we have a person, he, he had great promises, just as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had great promises. But it says he scorned the promises of the Lord. He, he looked at the coming promises and he said, this is worthless. What do I need a birthright for? Says, Thus he despised his birthright. He says, I don't care about this. This covenant, 
I don't care about it. I don't need a place in this. I mean, obviously, maybe he wanted prosperity, but he, he counted the Lord's promises as worthless. And so he sold his place in the covenant promises so that he could exercise his own lust. And so he sold it for a bowl of soup. It was worthless. A bowl of soup is more important to Esau. And so he scorned the promise of God so that he could pursue his own sinful uh, desires is essentially what the story of Esau is. And we're not to do the same thing. And we're not to, we're, we're to watch over each other so that no one is deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. We're to exhort another, which it says earlier in chapter 3, while it's today. So that no one does get deceived in that way and spring up in that way as a root of bitterness and defile many. So that they cast away these promises. So they cast away the name of the Lord that they may have had a, at least a profession of and turn themselves into their own sin and corrupt themselves and many others. So we're to endure as a church because how we endure as a church affects not just how the church runs, but also how we run as well. So it's personal endurance, but it's also corporal endurance. And this is something that we do through faith by holding on to the Lord's promises. I wanted to close um, by reading two verses, two final verses. Um, this is something that I've said we do through faith. This isn't something that we can do in our own strength. This is something that we have to do through faith. This is something that we have to trust in the Lord. But we do have to ready ourselves in our minds to be faithful to the Lord. But when we're looking for strength, how, how do we do this? We have to look to Christ. And that, that's the way that our reality is in Christ. And Jude 24 and 25 puts that very clearly. And so we'll close just by reading the final two verses. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our dear Lord and our eternal Father, Lord, we do thank you for the words that we've been considering this morning. Lord, we do pray that you would give us strength, Lord, that we would be enabled to stand for Christ, Lord, in our time. Lord, we do know that we are weak, and Lord, we cannot do this in our own strength, but Lord, we have a Savior who is able to present us faultless and spotless before the throne. And Lord, so we pray that you would give us that strength and lift us to have a good testimony that we would obey you in all things. We love you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.